Welcome to the Exam Room Rambles podcast, where veterinarian Dr. Tracy Westergaard shares the same tips, opinions, and explanations she gives you in the exam room, only without barking dogs or hissing cats. We're really glad you're here. Enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome to Exam Room Rambles. I'm Dr. Tracy Westergaard, and I am here to talk to you today about bloat. Now, this is my first episode where I'm actually talking about a disease, how we diagnose it, how you can prevent it, how we treat it. So I'm kind of nervous a little bit, not too bad. The reason I picked bloat is because my colleagues, Dr. Scott and Dr. Pat at the Marshall Animal Clinic, along with certified vet tech Stephanie, are doing surgery on a bloat right now, a bloated dog. So the technical name for bloat is gastric dilatation and volvulus. We abbreviate that GDV. I will use the term GDV and bloat interchangeably. Bloat only occurs in dogs. Well, it happens in like cows and stuff, but today this episode is just about dogs. So if you are a cat lover and don't have a dog, you can either tune in with me next week or you can listen because you may have a family member or a friend or a coworker that has dogs that could potentially be at risk for this disease. And I would love it if you shared this podcast with them. So bloat, like the name would imply, is when the stomach of a dog gets extremely distended with gas, huge distended with gas, and it will actually twist. We're not completely sure what comes first, the bloating from the gas and the twist second. Um, There's some speculation that it may be the other way around. The stomach twists, and because of that, it fills up with gas. Regardless, it doesn't matter because this is a true, real emergency. It does not matter if it is 9 o'clock on Christmas morning and we're opening presents with our kids, or if it's a Saturday night at 2 a.m., a Tuesday afternoon. This is a true, real-life emergency, and time is absolutely critical to the outcome. What are the signs of bloat? What do you see that would make you think this is a real-life emergency? You need to call your vet right now. The number one sign is a non-productive retching. So your dog continues to vomit, but nothing comes up. Maybe a little fluid, but no breakfast, no grass, no toy that they ate earlier in the day. They continue to retch, and it is very non-progressive. Along with this, they are painful. They are agitated. These dogs are panting. Their heart is racing. They have that sad, distressed, worried look in their eyes. Sometimes we actually see a distended abdomen. But not always, because the stomach on the dogs that are at risk for this condition, and I'm going to get to that, often their stomach is up under their rib cage. So you may see a little bit of rib flare, but you don't always see a big bloated belly. Sometimes you do, sometimes you don't. Another common sign is salivation. These dogs can't really swallow effectively because that stomach is twisted. Now, some of these signs can look like other diseases. They could look like a garbage gut. They could look like a foreign body. The distended nature of the dogs and them being very weak and painful can also look like a common emergency we've seen, a ruptured spleen from an underlying hemangiosarcoma. But if you suspect any of these signs could be related to your dog bloating and you have a dog at risk specifically, you need to call immediately. So the dogs that are at risk are going to be the dogs that have the deep chest. Now, these are traditionally your giant breed dogs. The first one that comes to mind is Great Danes. A second one that we don't see a lot at Marshall Animal Clinic, but still would be a high risk, would be Standard Poodles. The last two bloats that we have had, well, 
last two out of three have been wired hair pointers, the hunting dog. They tend to have really deep chest, but they're very narrow. Doberman pinchers, German shepherds, the different types of setters, labs with certain conformation, any of these large breed dogs are going to be at risk. But what specifically makes them at risk is the fact that they have a very tall chest or a very deep chest, and yet their rib cage is narrow. It's that conformation that predisposes them. So think of what the chest looks like on a Great Dane. Very, very tall, yet pretty narrow. I have not personally seen bloat in any toy breed dogs, little poodles, chihuahuas, medium-sized and mixed breed dogs, beagles, basset hounds, but theoretically, it can happen in them. And I know emergency clinics in more metropolis areas have seen bloats in all species of dogs. So other risk factors, other than the number one risk factor of a tall, deep chest compared to width, would be the greedy, fast-eating dogs, the dogs that wolf their food. Sometimes these dogs are just hungry by nature, but sometimes there can be some underlying food anxieties or they feel stress around feeding and have a need to wolf their food. The third risk factor, feeding dry kibble. And though this is a little controversial, we would say feeding food on the floor, if you have a giant breed dog, puts them at risk. There have been some studies that have debunked that, but I'm just enough old school to say that if you have a giant breed at risk dog for bloat, that you should feed them in an elevated food bowl. Other possible risk factors that aren't necessarily proved or unproven by any scientific study would be exercise after eating having one large meal per day versus meal feeding, and even ingredients. I've come across some theories that corn and soy in our dog foods can predispose dogs to bloat. I'm not sure if I buy into that one, but I'm trying to be open-minded and keeping my ears open for any new research on that topic. Another one that I can't help but believe is genetics. Again, there's been no specific study saying that there is a genetic predisposition within that at-risk breed. But I would play it safe. And if you have a breeding animal or an animal that you want to breed that suffers from this or has a direct sibling or parent that has suffered from this, do not breed them. Why risk it? It's not worth it. One good thing about bloat, and I, I guess it can't really be classified as a good thing, but one advantage to this condition is that it's very easy for veterinarians to diagnose. Often we suspect it on the phone before you've even brought your pet to the clinic, but we can simply do a physical exam and a radiograph and have a diagnosis in a matter of minutes. The things that we typically find on physical exam is signs of shock. These animals have a low blood pressure. Their pulses will be thready. They'll have an extremely high heart rate, poor gum color. They'll have that painful, sad expression on their face. They'll be panting. Often we see that distended stomach I was talking about earlier. But the first thing we almost always do is take them straight to radiology. Just a simple lateral radiograph will show a huge gas-filled stomach. And often there is the telltale sign that we call in veterinary medicine, the double bubble. Now, if this wasn't a podcast, I could show you a picture and you'd be like, wow, I'm not a veterinarian. I don't look at radiographs, but something's not right there. It literally looks like two big black bubbles that take up a huge part of the abdomen. So there's really nothing else that looks like that. 
We still like to do blood work on these dogs just to make sure that their liver and kidney is functional and that they're still a good candidate for surgery. But before we can even consider surgery, we need to stabilize this patient. And we do this in two ways. The first thing we do is we pop in an IV catheter, sometimes two. We'll put an IV catheter in both front legs and run these guys' fluids fast. The second thing we do is we need to decompress the stomach. We need to get the air out of the stomach, relieve the pressure. That air can distend that stomach so much that it compromises the integrity of the tissue. And then that twist also, which is perpetuated by that air, cuts off blood supply to the other organs. The spleen actually is really close to the stomach and that can get twisted up also. There are two ways to get gas off the stomach, and each case is an individual and each doctor has a preference. Sometimes we actually have to take a catheter or a needle and literally put it through the skin directly into the stomach and release the air. Now that is not without risk. There's risk of hitting other organs. There's risk of contamination from the outside world or from some of those stomach contents. But the other option is not without risk either, and that would be to mildly sedate the dog and pass a stomach tube. Sometimes that stomach tube is not easy to pass, and sedating them before they are stabilized is a little bit risky too. It's one of those deals where you are damned if you do, damned if you don't. You're backed in a corner, and if we don't do something fast, this animal dies. That sounds dramatic, but this is truly life or death. I hate to be a Debbie Downer, but this is a condition that if it happens to your pet while you're gone at work or overnight when your dog's in the kennel, when you come home or you wake up the next morning, it's too late. Your dog is possibly passed on. They die very fast with this condition. It is truly an emergency. So once we have the gas off the stomach, the patient has got some fluids in it, we got the blood pressure up, and this all happens in a pretty short time, less than an hour. We usually take these dogs right to surgery. Now, not every vet clinic does this surgery. Where we are, we're kind of out in the boondock. We are a couple hours drive to the nearest big cities. We are kind of the big city in southwest Minnesota. Now, if you live in a city or a place that has an emergency clinic, that's probably where your regular veterinarian is going to direct you. I'm going to get just a little off topic here. <laughs> And it's not really a rant, but it's something that needs to be brought up. Whatever veterinarian you go to during your annual wellness or doing a more routine appointment, you need to discuss with them what you need to do if you have an emergency or have a question after hours. We're in a small town. We're a multi-doctor practice. We all take turns answering the phone at night. We will answer the phone 365 days a year, one of us. But other clinics in cities where there's multiple clinics often have emergency clinics and your doctor may or may not take his own call and may or may not direct you to that emergency clinic. But you need to know ahead of time so that you have a game plan if any emergency happens, whether it's your dog gets hit by a car or your male cat is plugged in camp pee. Be sure to ask your veterinarian what to do if there is ever an emergency. Okay, I'll get back to bloat. I'm trying to remember where I left off. Surgery. Oh, so we will take these dogs to surgery at Marshall Animal Clinic. The surgery in an emergency is a little different than the preventative surgery we do. The first thing we do is open that dog up. We literally manipulate the tissues so that the stomach is untwisted. 
And then we go ahead and we allow blood flow to return and we just kind of sit and, and watch and assess everything. We take a few minutes to look at all of the organs in the entire abdomen. We watch the spleen specifically to make sure those blood vessels that go to the spleen are pumping good to make sure there's no blood clots that would prevent perfusion. And then we go ahead and tack the stomach. Now, we literally create an adhesion from the body wall to the stomach wall. And we do this with suture. Um, every veterinarian probably has a little different technique. The technique I personally use is kind of to etch a little square in the body wall, and then I etch a little square in the on the outside of the stomach, put them together face to face, and then I suture all the way around that square. There are lots of different methods that different veterinarians use in different situations, but that's the one that works best in my hand. The technical name for that is a gastropexy, but we use the term stomach tack pretty loosely. Now, sometimes when we're doing this surgery on an emergency, if part of the stomach we think is dead tissue and it's black and the blood vessels don't seem to be pumping to it, sometimes we have to remove part of the stomach. And that's a really tough call. Sometimes it's hard to know what tissue is damaged and what tissue is dead. And that just comes with experience. I've been wrong on this one before, and uh, it's pretty heartbreaking. We have a pretty good success rate at Marshall Animal Clinic. I did not do the calculations technically. I didn't look up the last several cases and come up with a number. But if I had to estimate, I'd say that we have about an 80% success rate with surgery. So I bet some of you are wondering what this emergency visit and emergency surgery is going to cost. And it is one of the more expensive emergencies. In our rural practice, in our rural community, this usually runs around $1,500 up to $2,000 with additional hospital stays and meds. But if you're in a city, I think this can easily be $2,500 to $5,000. So much of pricing is about where you're located, just like with the housing market or even the cost of food and restaurants. So back to the dog. When we make it through surgery, and 80% of these dogs do, we do have to watch them closely for a day or two for other complications. Because the circulation gets so messed up in this twist, and then all of a sudden we untwist it and circulation tries to go back to normal, we can have perfusion injury, we can have heart-related issues where the heartbeat is irregular. Now, we haven't had many complications where we've lost animals post-op at Marshall Animal Clinic, but I'm sure emergency clinics that are seeing these GDPs more often than us do see these complications. Just know that it's more complicated than simply making it through surgery. Once you get your dog home from surgery and it's made it through that immediate post-op, um, we're probably going to send you home on anti-vomiting medications Maybe or maybe not antibiotics, depending on what the doctor found in surgery, depending on how they decompressed the stomach prior to surgery. If there's other issues like diarrhea or bacterial overgrowth secondary to the surgery. So antibiotics, maybe, maybe not. Pain meds, for sure. We'll probably use a combination of pain meds. If the stomach was compromised, there's a chance for ulceration, and some of the common pain meds we use actually can be ulcerogenic, the non-steroidal anti-inflammatories. So we may choose to use different pain meds. Again, each case is an individual, and that will be decided on an individual basis. We will encourage you to feed small, frequent meals, so like four times a day, Preferably canned food for at least a week after surgery. 
We like easily digestible diet like the Science Diet ID or Royal Canin's GI food. However, a homemade diet would be appropriate too. The hamburger and rice, cooked hamburger with the grease rinse off, and cooked white rice at a ratio of one part burger to two parts rice would be appropriate in this case. Then there's your generic post-surgery recommendations. You're going to want to watch the incision for drainage. Swelling, you're going to want to leash walk only. If your dog is accustomed to being in the crate, they should probably be crated when they're not supervised. You'll need to monitor stools. We would expect there to be nice form stools within a day or two. If there's diarrhea that persists, we would want to address that. Sutures out in 14 days. And of course, always call if you feel like you have any questions or concerns or your dog's not doing as well as you think it should be. Lastly, I'd like to talk about prevention. This is a condition that we can prevent. If you decide that you want to get a Great Dane puppy, you don't want to live with this constant fear that your dog is going to have a GDV, we can actually do the same gastropexy surgery that we do on emergency at the same time that we spay or neuter your pet. If you have an older dog that's already been spayed and neutered, but you're interested in this preventative procedure, we can still do it. Again, just like with the actual emergency surgery, I don't know that every clinic offers gastropexies, but we do at the Marshall Animal Clinic. If you have a breed that's at risk, we'll probably bring it up to you in one of our annual exams or new puppy exams with you. Now, things are really odd times right now with coronavirus and quarantine and not having face-to-face exam room conversations, which is one of the reasons I decided to do podcasts. But if it doesn't get brought up and you think you might have a dog that has a chest that is deeper than it is wide, definitely don't hesitate to call us and ask us to give you kind of a risk analysis on whether or not we think it would be advantageous and cost-effective for you to do that for your dog. So I bet you're wondering if we have ever had a dog that has had a tack done that has still bloated. And I have to say, yes, we did. We had a patient, a German Shepherd dog, who was tacked at another clinic as a young dog and in his older age, bloated repeatedly. He'd come in on emergency, we'd sedate him, pass that stomach tube, the bloat would go down, and he'd be fine for a couple weeks until it happened again. Now, the tack prevented him from twisting, but he still did bloat. Now, unfortunately, that dog had some underlying condition, and it's been a couple years, so I can't remember if it was stomach cancer or another inflammatory condition in his abdomen, but there was an underlying issue, and at his age, the owner chose not to treat him. Other than that, as far as we know, in my almost 20 years at Marshall Animal Clinic, we have not had attack failure. We have not had any major complications to the procedure. It's really pretty safe, pretty effective, and pretty economical. So maybe you have an older dog and you're not interested in taking them to do a preventative gastropexy, but you still want to minimize the risk. One thing I would encourage you to do is, number one, feed them elevated or feed them with one of those slow feed, no bolt bowls. There are so many on the market. I talked about them in a previous podcast, but slowing down the eating process will definitely help prevent bloat. If your dog does have anxiety around feeding time, and that anxiety is why they feel they need to wolf their food down, 
we need to address those issues. That's kind of beyond the scope of this podcast, but it's something that you could talk about with your veterinarian, or maybe I'll do a podcast on it down the road. And lastly, like I touched on earlier, have a plan. If you have a breed that is at risk, you need to talk with the other people in your family who are responsible for this dog, what your wishes would be for your pet in this situation. And then how are you going to pay for it? If you don't have pet insurance, I would encourage you to look into that. We have had a handful of clients at Marshall Animal Clinic, by no means lots of them. And every single client that we've had with pet insurance has been glad they had it and it has paid for itself over and over again. So that is one thing to look into. The second thing that we recommend everybody have is a little savings account for emergencies with your pet. It can be a mason jar on top of your fridge that you throw five bucks in once a week or anytime you have loose change, throw it in that and save that for when you need it. I would hope that you would never need to use it. But honestly, if you have pets long enough, you are going to have an emergency at some point. And it's a lot less stressful and easy to make decisions when you know that you are financially prepared for that emergency. I think I'm going to wrap things up here. I feel like that was kind of a Debbie Downer kind of podcast, all gloom and doom, like your dog could get bloat and it could have expensive surgery and it could die if you don't. And if you're not fast enough, it will die. So I apologize for that. The intention is not to create fear or anxiety in you, but this is such an important emergency and it's one we see on a very regular basis. So I want you to know about it. If you know someone with an at-risk breed, please share this podcast with them. Thank you. And as always, you can give any constructive criticism, ideas for shows, or broad generalized questions to examroomrambles at gmail.com. Or you can contact me at the Marshall Animal Clinic during regular business hours, 507-537-1537, or visit our website, marshallanimalclinic.com. Thank you. Thank you.